talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Thursday Buckeye Talk. Doug Lee Marie, Safe Baird, and Stephen Means. We're going to do a couple things on this pod. We're going to deal with some playoff stuff because it does matter. And we did get information about that on Tuesday night, but we'd already recorded the Wednesday pod by then. Um, talk about some other things. And we're going to start off with all Big Ten team. So this will not be as intense uh, and emotional uh, as we have been in the several days since Ohio State lost to Michigan and trying to evaluate where fans are and that kind of thing. But Nathan, the all Big Ten voting came out and I'm sure people may have read some about it, but it's also not like one of those things where people are like, oh my God, the, the all Big Ten voting. Well, so maybe everybody doesn't know or think, oh, the all Big Ten voting. I mean, I guess you care, but it's like, I don't know. Did you set an, like a Google alert for all Big Ten voting? I don't know, maybe. So who made it, Nathan? What Buckeyes made it? Who didn't make it? Break it down for us. Well, basically everybody made it, actually. <laughs> the only like <laughs> regular starting player who didn't make either team, as even Armel mentioned, I believe was Julian Fleming. But there were 13 players on defense and two specialists and 10 players. Oh, wait, maybe it was 11 on off defense and two specialists and then 10 on offense. So basically everybody, as is often the case for Ohio State, makes something um, for all Big Ten. But first team guys, which is really obviously what people, I think, really focus on the most. Uh, JT Tuimaloau on defense. uh, Tommy Eichenberg on defense. He was coaches and media. And Zach Harrison on defense. We're all three first team players. And then four on offense. CJ Stroud, obviously, who's also the offensive player of the year and quarterback of the year for the second year in a row. Marvin Harrison Jr., who was the receiver of the year. And then um, Donovan Jackson, which was a little bit of a surprise, and uh, Paris Johnson Jr. Okay, so let's run through these, what we think. I did vote on this, so I have where I voted um, for all the guys. And when you did the voting, it was lumped. Like you voted for three quarterbacks, you voted for six running backs, and you voted in order. I think you voted for... Nine receivers, you voted for nine receivers, three tight ends, three centers, six interior offensive linemen, so it's like six guards, and six tackles. Uh, and then defensively, you voted for like 12 defensive linemen. So they do not make a differentiation between tackles and edge guys, which I think hurts the tackles because the edge guys mm-hmm. are easier to evaluate because people look at sack stats. And the same thing in the secondary. They don't divide the safeties and the corners, which, again, I think is is kind of odd because I think we all know the difference between corners and safeties. And I think you could evaluate that without, without acting like, oh, well, DBs are DBs. So I, I, I don't know why they do that, but this is also a league that doesn't do a preseason poll because it doesn't want to hurt feelings, so maybe they're not good at voting. I don't know. Steven, C.J. Stroud as the quarterback, like there's no doubt about that. Is it also kind of the way – is it five years in a row? How many years in a row is it that the Ohio yeah. State quarterback has been yeah. a first-team guy? Five years in a row dating back to Dwayne Haskins 2018 and then Fields doing it twice and now C.J. doing it twice. That's just the way this offense works at this point. Yeah, You can do – I don't want to say do the bare minimum because it takes away from what those quarterbacks do, but show up, make the right decisions, and you're going to put up numbers in this offense that probably lead to you being you know, quarterback of the year, offensive player of the year, first team, all Big Ten, all those things. Lincoln Riley will have something to say about that starting in 2024. So yes. suddenly it will become a more interesting conversation. And mm-hmm. Chip Kelly, frankly, might also. I mean, if you had this – and this is not what this pod is going to be. What if UCLA and USC were in the Big Ten right now? Who? How many other guys would be on the All-Big Ten team? But I oh. do think the, all, the the quarterbacks would have been 
one Caleb Williams, two C.J. Stroud, three Dorian Thompson-Robinson, Stephen, from mm-hmm. UCLA, and those would be your three guys. But it's going to be interesting seeing that change because it feels like just because Lincoln Riley's quarterbacks, uh, Caleb Williams might be, what, the third quarterback he's had that's won the Heisman by this time in the next two weeks here. So it's going to be interesting. The Big Ten Player of the Year, Big Ten quarterback, all-first team, Big Ten, All-America. There's so many things that are going to run through the Big Ten just because Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day have you know created these quarterback factories at their respective schools. It's actually seven years in a row that Ohio State has had the quarterback of the year five years in a row that they swept that and offensive player of the year but seven years in a row for the quarterback but I mean as early as next year there's some other candidates I mean Kyle McCord or or Devin Brown whoever takes that job is going to have to defend it against you know the J.J. McCarthy's and whoever else might be out there Jalen so Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield won the Heisman for Lincoln Riley Jalen Hurts finished second and Spencer Mm -hmm. Rattler won the preseason Heisman for Lincoln Riley so that also you get a uh one one hundredth of a point for winning the preseason Heisman in those rankings. I had Stroud one, Aiden O'Connell two, JJ McCarthy three. I did not have Talia because I think like his upside is there, but I think consistently. And again, I do think in voting you kind of lean towards guys who's who directly help their teams achieve greatness through their play. So that's why I put a Purdue guy and a Michigan guy in there, second and third. I don't actually know who made second and third, but I, that was who I did. One question before Nathan gives you the answer to that. How much of the J.J. McCarthy 2, Aiden McConnell 3 was what J.J. McCarthy did well, against I had Aiden Ohio. McConnell 2, J.J. McCarthy Okay, never mind. Never mind. Then I'll take, I'll yeah. take away exactly what I said then. Never mind. So they were all I mean, in the mix. J.J. McCarthy would – he would not have made my ballot without throwing uh, without, it, seven uh, touchdowns. Without State, State? Yeah, because it, it seems like he got the bump from a quarterback perspective the same way that Aiden Hutchinson a year ago got the Heisman bump because of what he did against Ohio State. Well, again, like it's which a helps. bump, but it's also he played excellently in the game that mattered against the best yes. opponent they played, which is like, yes. it's, I mean, it's one of 12, but it's really like, I don't know, half your resume when you're an Ohio mm-hmm. State or Michigan guy in that game. Nathan, who were the quarterback? What was the quarterback mix? So all the guys we've talked about, but in a, in a – in a mix. Uh, second team for the coaches was Tagovailoa and O'Connell, and third team was McCarthy. And then for the media, second team was McCarthy, third team was O'Connell. All right. So running back, I did not list an Ohio running back among the six. Uh, it's really interesting. Like this was again the top three for running back: Blake Corum, Chase Brown, and Mo Ibrahim. And that is a that is a good group. That is like yeah. that was like hard mm-hmm. to choose from. Um, so I know I put Corm and Brown as my top two, and I put Ibrahim third. But like it wasn't, it wasn't very far. And the, like it's hard with Blake Corm. It's like you've been great all year, and then like your team won the biggest game without you. I mean that doesn't that's not a knock against him, but you know Chase Brown, Illinois wouldn't be what Illinois has been without Chase Brown, and I think Minnesota wouldn't be without who they were without Mo Ibrahim. So anyway, no high state guys there. I did put Marvin first for receivers. Like that's and he won Receiver of the Year, Nathan. Like. What's the guy's name? I always get confused because if you were a, 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 a child of the 80s at all and you watched the NFL, that uh, the Air Coriel San Diego Chargers with Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow and John Jefferson and Charlie Joyner. I love Charlie Joyner. So I always think the guy who transferred from Iowa to Purdue is Charlie Joyner, but it's not. It's Charlie Jones, right? Nathan, is Charlie Jones? Correct. So I apologize to Charlie, but that's why it's because I'm confusing you with like a legend of 1984 NFL football. So, you know, it's a good thing. But 
Marvin's, I put Marvin one. I think I had Charlie Jones two. It had to be Marvin for the best receiver in the Big Ten this year, even though last year, like it wasn't Garrett and it wasn't Chris, but it had to, then it have to be Marvin, Nathan? I think so. I mean, if you're just talking about who actually is the best, who has the presence? I mean, uh, Charlie Jones leads the Big Ten in receptions. He has 25 more receptions than Marvin Harrison, but only 42 more yards and the same number of touchdowns. Well, mm-hmm. they're both like tied for the lead. So I, I think people recognized here what is production and what is presence. And Marvin Harrison Jr.'s palpable presence on a football field is different than what it is for Charlie Jones, who is a good story and uh, is going to get to play in back-to-back Big Ten championship games for two different teams against Michigan. But people made the right call here. Marvin Harrison Jones or Marvin Harrison, Marvin Harrison Jr. clearly was the best receiver in the Big Ten, and may, you know, arguably Marvin the best Harrison. Marvin Harrison Jones is a. That's a that's a different guy who might be a combination of the two. I think what helped Marvin this year is Mecca has a thousand y- yards this year, but the way he's played for the bulk of the second half of the season, it doesn't feel like he's got one of the nine thousand yard seasons in Ohio State history. Garrett and Chris took away from each other already coming into the year, and then here comes Jackson to the party taking away from both of them. I think Marvin was so steady and so consistent that it allowed him to give that feeling that we see from other Big Ten wide receivers sometimes, where they're often their team's only option. It felt that way for some weeks with Marvin Harrison Jr., which allows him to be in a situation where not only is he the Big Ten's best receiver or first-team All-Big Ten, he's probably going to be a first-team All-American, and he might win the Blitnikoff. So my bus, solid bus, baby. Love that bus. He's not going to have 17 touchdowns, but he had a very, very, very good year. Very good year. I think he's going to win the Bletnikoff. I do, too. Because it's Jalen Hyatt from Tennessee, and who's the third guy? Who's the other finalist? Kid from Iowa State. I can't yeah. remember. Oh, Xavier, Xavier Hutchinson. Um, I love Xavier yeah. Hutchinson. Yeah. yeah, He's had great but numbers, too. He's got he's not Marvin catches. He, no. He's not Marvin Harrison, Jr. Um, I, I do think Marvin's... I do think Marvin's going to win that. And I'm one of the 7,000 Bletnikoff voters, too. I vote but for I do that think, as well. I yeah, think like I Marvin know. is like... Some juice. He's got some juice. And like the Hyatt thing, Tennessee peaked and then fell off. Now, so did Ohio State, but Ohio State fell off later than Tennessee did. Tennessee's been kind of out of sight, out of mind for like two or three weeks. So I think that's so much of his, the minds of voters. So much of his, I feel like as a voter, is linked to the Alabama game where, I mean, they just threw it all around the yard that afternoon. And so there is a feeling of how much of it is you can't give a guy a, a, a national award off of one game like that. Just because of the way it bolsters up. Not saying he was he was their best receiver all year, but part of that's because their actual best receiver was out for most of the year. But so much of it is on, look what he did against Alabama while Marvin's got three, four, five games like that. I, I do agree with that, the, the, the idea you can't base it on one game. I will say Hyatt's got like a significant gap on him in yards per uh, reception. He's got more touchdowns than him, even as many touchdowns. He's got three more touchdowns than him. So I would not discount Hyatt here. Um as as but I think Harrison sets up to be clear the front runner going into next year. Which means he'll probably be hurt all year. No, I didn't mean that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not on it. Thought I was the negative one. Luck. I thought I was Bad the luck. Debbie Downer on this podcast. I mean, it's not just a Jackson thing. Like Jordan Addison spent some time out this year. Yeah. We yeah, haven't seen the Belitnikov the, the winner has been a sophomore the last couple of years, but their follow up year, whether it's because they're hurt or they're opting out because of COVID, has never really let them do it again. So we'll see with, we'll knock on wood with Marvin Harrison that a global wide pandemic doesn't wipe him out or a soft tissue injury. Or abducted by aliens. 
I or did put a Mecca fourth. I had a Mecca fourth, which would be second team. What did a Mecca make, Nathan? You made second team. Okay. I think that's um, right. I Just like it, you I said, Stephen, he had a thousand yards. Like, I'm like mm-hmm. God, I don't know. What do you like? What do you want from the guy? He had a thousand receiving yards. Like, that's how many guys in the Big Ten had a thousand receiving yards? I guess that's probably readily available information. Three. No, four. Four. Charlie Jones, Marvin Harrison Jr., Trey Palmer at Nebraska, and Mecca. He's the fourth. And every and then after that, it's a gap. The next guy is Keon Coleman with seven ninety eight right now. So, I will say I also did an and I think this it's almost a kind of intended to be this way when they have this kind of thing. You do if you see a guy do it, it does stick with you a little bit. So like Keon Coleman, like the big body receiver kind of thing. I mean that guy's like a real dude. Uh, and mm. Parker Washington, like Parker, I like Parker Washington from the jump, but like Parker Washington, like tore Ohio State apart. So Parker Washington was high on my ballot. It might be he might be higher on my ballot than he was on other people's ballots. Like I, I think Parker Washington's great, but I still think Emeka absolutely is a second teamer, no doubt about it. Two touchdowns from think- Parker Washington this year. What about yeah, Parker Trump? Washington? What do you want the guy? Parker Washington yes. didn't make any of the teams. <laughs> I mean, he might have been make any of the teams. He, he was, I think he was honorable mention. Yeah, he was honorable mention, but did not make for second, third team. He'd he's fifth. He's sixth in the Big Ten in receiving yards. No, he's sixth in the That's Big not Ten. Sure. He's something. Tenth. He's tenth in receiving yards. He is thirteenth in catches. He, and he, only, he only played ten games. Yeah, you're he's looking at sixth in, yeah. He's sixth in receiving yards per game, which yeah. I'll allow. I'll take that into consideration when I voted for yeah, Parker Washington. Sure. Vote better, people. He's good. Uh, what did Kate Stover do? He was third team. Okay, for... so it's it's Laporta from Iowa's first team, and then the, there's the Minnesota tight end who is has tremendous blocking grades on PFF and also caught a bunch of balls. Right, he's the second teamer. Is that right? Laporta first, and Payne Durham from Purdue second. Oh no, boo! What about the Minnesota guy? What happened to the Minnesota guy? Not, not on make it for either. Yeah. What are we doing? Uh, I had Cade Stover third team, so he made it. So Paris Johnson, in the end, I, we were talking about how, like, the three tackles, I think it's tough. Peter Skaronsky from Northwestern, Olu Fashanu from um, Olu Fashanu for Penn State, who announced that he's staying at Penn State, not going on the draft, and Paris Johnson, three elite, elite, like, three guys who, if Fashanu were gone, they might have all been picked in the top 15 in the draft. Nathan, it's... Hard to splice. I did do Skaronsky, Paris, Fashanu for my three, and then I had Dewan Jones fifth on my tackle list. Um, what was the break? Was it Skaronsky and Paris were first team, and Fashanu was second team? I'm checking both lists now, but uh, yeah, Skaronsky and Paris first teams, and then Fashanu and Ryan Hayes from Michigan on the coaches. Yes, and um, actually um, for the media. Fashanu was third team, and so was Hayes behind what Alex. What the heck? God, and Dewan. Dewan was second team for the media. No, that's wrong. What? No offense. I mean, I had Dewan fifth on my list, but like Fashanu is like Fashanu, like he was going to be like down. the first uh, tackle off the board, maybe in the draft. Yeah. What are we doing? Be better. That, the, okay. The left side of Penn State's line did, did, was not the problem when they played Ohio State. That's weird. Okay. So again, so congratulations. And then the guards, I I did not put. I had Luke Whipler third team for the center, uh, behind um, uh, Oluwatimi from Michigan and John Michael Schmitz. I can't, I'm sorry, the Minnesota guy. Who, yeah, yes. And then I had Whipler third. Nathan, is that how that went out? Is that was that the order? That was the order for the media and for 
actually for the coaches, Oluwatimi and Schmitz tied for first team. Alex Philstrom from Illinois, second team. Juice Scruggs, Penn State, third team. So Whipler did not – he only made third team for the media. Interesting. I thought Whipler had a good year. I was I, – I think his PFF grade is good, and I think I thought the, the eyeball test backed it up. Um, and so what happened with the guards for Ohio State, Nathan? So Donovan Jackson and Matt Jones were both second team from the coaches. And from the media, they, Matt Jones was second team and first team for the um for the media no donovan jackson donovan jackson, donovan was, jackson first was, team. was first team yeah matt jones was second team. okay yeah. so i don't i don't think my eyeballs told me that the pff grades are very high for all the ohio state offensive linemen um i that that was not the eyeballs to me and i thought just the way the offensive lines like at illinois and 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 michigan played i think that's a little bit of a nod uh that you would get as well. So I did, I did not have those guys as highly rated. And I was a little bit surprised uh, at how high they finished. Uh, all right. Defensively, Steven, if you were doing a ballot for anything, if you were doing any kind of ranking that was rank Ohio state defensive lineman in order of who the best guy was this year, like, what would your top three be? And you may take some time to ponder this because I think this is an, a somewhat complicated question that is hard yeah. to do off the top of your head when we did not prep it. So you are allowed to be wishy-washy in your answer because I don't think there's a definitive answer and then we can have a discussion about it. But that's kind of why I want to discuss it because I think it's an interesting topic. Because it is per- consistent production versus who showed the most upside when they had the chance. And so, consistent production. I might it's say like, well, it's your—it's just your ballot. It's like yeah, I mean, no, ballot, this right? is right. You have to balance it. It's just a ballot. Yeah, it's just a I mean, ranking. I mean, JC had the best game we've seen from a defensive player in decades, so he's got to be first. He just has to be. And then I might go. I think Teron Vincent, and then Zach Harrison. With Michael as my honorable mention, because we knew he got he has it. It's just they never let him do it for more than fifteen snaps a game. So you can only take but so much with that. So I might yeah, JT's Tehran second and Zach third. Nathan, how would you evaluate it if you were ranking Ohio State defensive linemen tackles and ends together? I think I would go JT first, Zach second, Hall. Third, Vincent fourth. I okay. think. So, so JT and Zach both made first team. Is that correct? So they both made first team for. I'm going to double check this. I believe they both made first team for the coaches. Uh, no, I'm sorry. First team for the. They both made first team for the media. What did the coaches do with them? Oh, a second. <laughs> I'm. I'm sorry. I'm flipping back between here. Um, I'm sorry. 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 JT made first team for the coaches. Zach made first team for the media. And then they both made second team for the opposite of those two things. Okay. So I do think sometimes it's like the coaches matter. Well, I mean, they do the coaches in this sense, you know, in the, in the, in the balloting, the AP poll matters more than the coaches poll. Cause the coaches don't put any time into it. In this balloting, it's like the coaches are like, Oh no, we game plan against that guy. We played against that guy. We do this. I had Zach. And then I had JT. And then I did not vote for another state, another Ohio state defensive lineman. JT had the best game, 
I, I'm I'm really sort of trying, and I know we talked a lot, like up until the Penn State game of like production from JT and was he getting held and all those things, right? And you know, it matters. But the Penn State game was so huge. And then I don't know how often you felt him in the other 11. And not that it wasn't good, but for like first team all Big Ten, and again, the coaches put him there. I put Zach first team all Big Ten because I thought Zach was more consistent across the board, game after game, run game, pass game. And then Mike Hall only played like – I did the list, I think, of uh, by PFF of like all the defensive tackles in the Big Ten, and Mike Hall was like 60th in snaps, and I just couldn't get there. Like, I just mm-hmm. can't vote for a guy who I, barely played. Not his fault, but when you're ranking something like this, I just, I just couldn't do it. And I actually thought there were some decent defensive tackles in the Big Ten. So the only two guys that I voted for in the top 12 were Zach and JT. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really hesitate to put Zach first. You guys would both have JT ahead of Zach. Nathan, I mean, the Penn State game speaks for itself. As Nate, as Steven said, it's one of the best games by a defensive end that you've ever seen on the college level. Um, am I? What do you think of me putting Zach ahead of it when you think of the collective? I, I understand it because I do think maybe there was a, certainly relative to even Zach's own career, a more steady high level of play. And there were multiple games this year where we asked ourselves, oh, is that like the best he's ever been? And that means something. I I think, though, that what you see reflected in the, the coaches vote a lot of times, especially at a position like this, is not statistical production. It's who did we have to worry about more? Mm-hmm. Who did we have to game plan for more to neutralize, to make sure they weren't killing us? And I think coaches also know how often their own guys are getting away with holds when they otherwise might have gotten called. So I think that is ultimately reflected there, that that the coaches recognize who always had the potential to wreck a game against them more. And that's not a knock of any kind against Zach Harrison, because I think he w- had a very good year. But I, I think that's where that reflection is. And it may, I'm, I'm really eager to see what third-year JT Tuomaloa looks like. I think that Zach Fon- there was finally a defensive end who, from a talent standpoint, raw natural talent standpoint, was better than him. At a time, I'm not counting his freshman year when he's you know, Chase Young is Chase Young, but he Zach's also a freshman. From sophomore year on, it felt like Zach Harrison, from a raw natural talent and ability standpoint, was always the best player in that room. And we always talked about what if he's the second most talented guy in that room? What happens then? And I think that's what we saw this year. JT, I think, from a raw natural talent standpoint, is better than Zach Harrison. And so to Nathan's point, other coaches know that. And so they put all the energy and game plan towards keeping him from wrecking things. And it opened up a lot of for Zach Harrison to sometimes be his best self. I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. And then and, and the thing in the end is, like, where are you trying to draw the line on production versus – uh, upside. And that's, as you said, Stephen, that's sort of like the thing that you, you kind of fall into um, mm-hmm. off the bat. I mean, it's, it's like, it's the whole discussion about sports at every level is that kind of discussion. And again, they, they had um, really similar, according to PFF, JT played 453 snaps and Zach played 435 and then Jack Sawyer played 313. So they obviously were the first two up. I'm not saying we know that PFF loves Zach Harrison. We know that. 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 
And so I'm not saying this was why I did this, but by PFF grade, Zach Harrison, 86, JT, 75. And Zach Harrison's run defense grade by PFF is 20 points higher than JT, but even his pass rush grade is three points higher than JT. So I, I'm not saying that matters more than what coaches think. I'm, I'm not. And I think, again, even a PFF grade is reflected by, well, that's like production based on did you do your job on that play? And maybe it's harder to do your job if there's like two guys blocking you because you're JT Tuimolo out. You know, so so I think all that goes into it. But um, that's why I came to that conclusion. Linebacker. Nathan, of all the things we got wrong in the preseason Cleveland.com Big Ten poll, which included not a single of the 36 writers voting for Purdue to win the West and not a single of the 36 writers voting for Michigan to win the East because it was unanimous that Ohio State would win the Big Ten this year. We did have Jack Campbell as the preseason defensive player of the year, and he was the postseason defensive player of the year. I thought the two best linebackers, Nathan, in the Big Ten this year were Jack Campbell and Tommy Eichenberg, and that's the way that I voted it, and Tommy made first team, and I don't know that there's much dispute about that for anybody. No, but it it is of the guys that were expected to contend for this kind of award before the year. Like, it ended up being – first team ended up being Campbell, Eichenberg, and Nick Herbig from Wisconsin, who is my preseason pick for Defensive Player of the Year, and – Herbig and Campbell were supposed to be there, and Eichenberg was sort of an afterthought. Like he wasn't a, he lost his starting job last year, and even those of us around the team uh, knew he was coming along. But so was maybe Cody Simon after he came back from injury. We didn't know that Tommy Eichenberg for sure was going to take this job and run with it the way he did. And he's one of the best stories in the Big Ten. The way I think that he came in and just became a a bit of a monster out there and somebody who just commanded the respect of, I think probably every team they played. I guess we didn't put a lot of credit into the fact that he was a defensive MVP of the Rose bowl. And he just built on that and turned it into an entire season. And he's got 112 tackles right now. If Ohio State would have beat Michigan on Saturday last week and they're playing in the big 10 championship game. And now they got potentially three games left. He's flirting with top 10 territory in terms of most tackles in the season by an Ohio State player. The lowest on that list is Alvin Washington, the, son, the father of former linebacker coach Al Washington with 146. So he would, he'd have been flirting in that territory, but I don't know if he can make that happen. And it's either going to be one or two games left, depending on what some teams do this weekend. I do. We knew Tommy Eichenberg could catch running backs in holes. Yes. I, I thought the way like he just made plays in space this year, right? He was tracking guys down and yep. you know, there'd be a guy running wide and here comes Tommy Eichenberg, you know, taking his legs out. And then here's a guy in space and on the sideline and here comes Tommy Eichenberg making a play. And so that idea of I think what you're saying, Steven, is like, well, you looked at that Utah game and there's kind of like a, a kind of specific kind of game where you knew Tommy Eichenberg could thrive, and then Tommy Eichenberg thrived in every kind of game. And so uh, as you said, Nathan, I mean, the idea that if there was like a, what's the award? Like not even like comeback player of the year, but like surprising player of the year of something. It's the kind of thing that we would do at cleveland.com. That's not like a real thing that an organization would vote on. And it's very hard to do, but I, I do think Tommy Eichenberg would be in contention, you know, and it's hard. I don't know. There's like the running back from Purdue who was a freshman who like, what? Like, what's that? So there's plenty of guys who were surprises in this league. You know, J.J. McCarthy would be on that list in, in some way. But I think Tommy Eichenberg is in that conversation for biggest leap um, of any guy who co- sort of had a baseline, Nathan, previously. 
It's like, oh no, this guy played like, like he started several games last year. He was good. I, was, I mean, but he, I don't know. He kind of <laughs> lost a job for a little bit, but like, I don't know. I mean, I guess he's fine. He's fine. Like the 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 biggest jump from fine, right? The 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 fine the the fine to great award. Tommy Eichenberg, I think, is right at the heart of that. Um, not really worth talking corners for Ohio State safeties, Nathan. If you rank safeties, Ohio State safeties for the year, rank the best safeties. Who would you put one, and who would you put two, and who would you put three? Ronnie Hickman one, and then a choice between McAllister and Ransom for two. And I'm tempted to say, just for consistency of play, there's a good case to be made for McAllister. Stephen, how would you rank safeties? Mm, I might put. Lathan one, Tanner two, and Ronnie three because it felt like Lathan he had some bumps on the road for sure, but it felt like he continued to trend upward, and I felt like Ronnie Hickman has kind of fell off a little bit over these last couple of weeks here. So I put Hickman first on my ballot, uh, and I put Ransom second, and I did not vote for McAllister. And again, you, you can't be beholden. Uh, to PFF rankings, but Tommy Eichenberg is the highest rated Ohio State defender on PFF. Ronnie Hickman is second. And among guys who played significant snaps, Lathan Ransom is sixth. It's not one play. It's not just because of a, you know, a tough coverage. And Ronnie Hickman also had the pass interference penalty against Michigan. But I think it's a similar conversation, Nathan, to the Zach Harrison, JT Tui Moloa conversation, which is sort of like, upside versus consistency. And I think I, in the end, leaned consistency with both of my ballots, with Zach and Ronnie on top. But I understand why somebody would go a different direction. Nathan, you had JT ahead of Zach, but you have Ronnie ahead of Lathan. I mean, it's, you know, it's not the exact same thing. But um, is that, how would you describe the the difference in like how you're trying to decide ranking Ronnie and Lathan? Well, it, it's difficult because Ronnie being the tackles leader last year, it stood out a little bit more. It was a little bit more in your face how productive he was. Whereas this year, the fact that he had fewer tackles was one of the best um, symptoms that the defense was so much better. That he wasn't having to make a lot of tackles at the back of this defense. I just feel like he was a guy who, you know, that pass interference call notwithstanding, a guy that you just can counted on to do his job so consistently well all season long. Um, and, and you mentioned the PFF grade, uh, just to throw this out, they put out their All-America team today, and he was second team All-American by PFF grade. And again, I think we know what that means. And and PFF is not the end-all be-all. It is not the end-all be-all. Correct. It is one piece of information to use in your evaluation. Um but Steven, again, like the way that Jim Knowles talked about Lathan Ransom during the course of the season and, and the mm-hmm. way you could see Lathan, here comes Lathan, you know, shooting up and making a tackle for a seven-yard loss, um, that kind of thing. That's what you're talking about when you talk about like the level of, of, of playmaking that maybe – and part of its job, right? Part of its bandit mm-hmm. versus adjuster and what you're asked to do. But the, certainly at its best, the playmaking of Lathan Ransom absolutely stood out on this defense. Jim Knowles used him as a weapon. And I think 
the Mike linebacker, Will linebacker versus Bandon adjuster conversation, there's some similarities there because they always say that those two roles are interchangeable. So, okay, cool. Let's, and if Lathan's going to be the adjuster next year, if he comes back, then fine, let's do this. But I just think Jim Knowles used his Mike linebacker and not his Will linebacker as a weapon all year. And he did the same thing with the bandit versus the adjuster. But I think that because I saw him do it with the Mike linebacker, I have no problem believing that if Lathan does come back, and he's the starting adjuster next year, they'll use him as a weapon even if he isn't playing Bandit any, anymore. But also, yeah, but Sonny, Styles, in- Sonny Styles is going to be a weapon too. If No offense to Lathan Ransom, but if we're playing who's your weapon at safety, I might choose Sonny Styles. First of all, I don't even think the safety word is. It's just Sonny Styles is going to be whatever he wants to be out there. I, and I'm not even sure if Sonny won't end up as a linebacker cause, just because of how big he is. But I think Lathan also impacted multiple phases of the game, and that matters to me. He has 65 tackles this year. He has forced fumbles. He blocked the punt. I mean, he was used every yep. way possible. While with Ronnie Hickman, he he just did his job very well. But also he played a role where they just needed him to do his job very well. Jordan Fuller-ish. Yeah, no, I do. I th- and it's hard. And this is why even it's like, you know, you ask the Big Ten, it's like, could you break this down by adjusters and bandits and have us yeah. vote for adjusters and bandits and tell, <laughs> can we get everybody in the league to call their safeties the same thing so we can compare apples to apples? Because it does because it's a, a difficult thing. And then, like, you're trying to compare, like, Ronnie Hickman to, like, Joey Porter Jr. And it's not and it's even like, the same What role. are we doing? Like, how is this? What are, what are we evaluating on? I don't I don't even know what this is supposed to be. So it's the way they do it. It's fine. Jim Harbaugh coach of the year is like, that's, that's the deal, right? Nathan. I mean, like that's the, who else you get. I mean, like I thought Brett Bielema, Bielema made a case. I think Jeff Brom made a case, right? There were people who made cases, um, but it's Harbaugh. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, there were people who in the West who I think if they had finished a little bit differently, even Purdue sort of like sideswipe this thing to win it at the end. Illinois, clearly, I mean, it was Bielema's job. It was Bielema's award to lose at one point, I think, even if Michigan had gone 12 and 0, if Illinois had finished 10 and 2, 9 and 3, instead of whatever they were, 7 and 5, I think he would have won this award. But under the circumstances, and especially with that punctuation mark that you're putting on it with game 12, I don't know who else to vote for besides Harbaugh. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, all right, so those were our Big Ten things. CJ, uh, obviously, again, as we talked about, was the Offensive Player of the Year. Jack Campbell, Defensive Player of the Year. Jim Harbaugh, Coach of the Year. Uh, Nick Singleton won Freshman of the Year, right, for Penn State. I think I actually voted for the Purdue guy because I thought – I mean, it's just, again, it's like trying to find impact. That guy became Purdue's running back. Devin Mockaby, mm-hmm. he's seventh in the Big Ten in rushing yards, which is one behind Singleton. Uh, and Singleton averages more yards per carry. But I almost think, like, Mockaby had to carry a little bit more of the load. And then, like, Mockaby's team made the Big Ten championship game. And I know Penn State has a better record. But I was trying to almost, like, acknowledge Purdue a little bit with that of, like, let's let's make sure we acknowledge a team in the Big Ten championship game. But Singleton is certainly a worthy guy as well. He had a really good year, and I think he's going to be really good. I think I agree with you with the Maccabi thing because Nicholas Singleton wasn't the only good freshman running back on Penn State's team this year. No, I know. They did a good job of spreading it out for Penn yeah. State, which eased the burden a little bit on Singleton. I think Maccabi yeah. by the end was sort of like kind of like the dude for Purdue mm-hmm. as Purdue was trying to make, you know, win the West. So Catron Allen fine. and Singleton are pretty much neck and neck with their stats and their usage. So I, I, yeah. I agree with you there. 
on that one. And it's one of those things. Again, I think it's okay to try to acknowledge teams sometimes, Nathan. Like, right? Like this. Yeah. I'm not trying to throw Purdue a bone, but it's like, well, yeah. you know, if it's something's close, you know, who's the guy that kind of helped their team get over the Penn State kind of had the year that you thought they would, which is great. That's a great year. Again, I do think I was on a, a podcast with the Penn State guys, the blue and white uh breakdown podcast today. And like from their perspective, just trying to explain like sometimes you're in the weeds. It's like I think out here we like take we don't acknowledge how good Penn State is. And it's almost like not that they're taking the Penn State season for granted, but it's like, well, you know, they got blown out in the second half by Michigan and they blew it late against Ohio State. And it's like, yeah, I know, but I think Penn State's pretty good. So um but ten and two Nathan was expected for them. Like Devin Mockaby helped Purdue be something that they weren't expected to be. And so in a close vote, I went with the Purdue guy. So I definitely think okay. voting for impact Anything is else? smart. Good. Yeah. I think voting impact is good. And I'm also struck within this conversation that how many good running backs there were in the Big Ten this year and how both Trevin Henderson and Braylon Allen kind of faded back a little bit. Yes. You know, obviously Trevion mm-hmm. because of the injuries. Allen just didn't have that great of a year. And uh, a lot of things in in this voting that um, seemed like no doubters going into the year, and it didn't turn out that way. I still think Allen was the fourth best running back in the Big Ten, but that's not what anyone thought he was going to be coming into the year. Right. It was like, oh, who's the mm-hmm. best running back in the Big Ten? It's like it's Braylon Allen, right? I mean, Mo Ibrahim was, was injured all of last year, and, you know, Blake Corm's good, and, you know, Chase Brown, I don't he know, was, but it's like, oh, Braylon Allen. second guy, yeah. Ooh, that stinking guy. And then it turns out that these those other three guys had great years. I did think in voting, right, last year there were so many good edge guys in mm-hmm. the Big Ten last year, and it was like that world of like, man, like the Ohio State tackles, they sure got tested because they were facing Arnold Abikidi and and Aiden Hutchinson and Boy Mafe and all these guys all year. And like when you were looking at the edge guys in the Big Ten this year, uh, like it was not the same. But then you're looking at the tackles, and it's like, the, the three tackles are arguably the three best tackles in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And then I think I mean, Ryan Hayes, the Michigan guy, is like really good. And DeWand is pretty darn good. And there's some other guys like the Illinois guy, I think, and this Purdue guy. Like there's some – I thought it was one of those where it flipped a little bit where um, there really were some really good offensive tackles. And then actually I thought that the defensive tackles were almost better than the defensive ends in the Big Ten this year. So anyway, that's where we landed. Anything else about all Big Ten? Than anybody wants to say. I mean, it is one of these things, Stephen. It's like, oh, and by the way, I don't know, CJ Stroud's the offensive player in the year in the Big Ten. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like because that's where that's where everybody is, and it's almost like I don't think that we're getting a we've gotten a little pushback at least on this in the text, and I get it. It's fine. It's not like people aren't mad, but when the team doesn't beat Michigan, it's yeah. almost like I don't know that anybody. It's sort of like nothing else matters until Sunday afternoon when the committee might call their name. And then, again, we'll have to see. I mean, obviously, that would be a game changer for Ohio State and how everybody views this season right now. But in this window in here, Stephen, individual awards are just are just not where people's heads are at, even though, by the way, C.J. Stroud was just named the Offensive Player of the Year in the Big Ten over Blake Corum, which is kind of over, and Chase Brown and Mo Ibrahim, which is like kind of a big stinking deal. It's hard for CJ right now because it, it even it adds on to what this CJ Stroud experience has been like. He was very, very good this year, but he lost to Michigan. So 
I don't know what we're supposed to do with this trophy. What are we supposed to do with this, right? His stats, his award, all that stuff, it doesn't matter because he just lost to Michigan, which he even kind of alluded to on Saturday when we talked to him. He's like, when people remember me, they're going to remember, I never won the game. I never won a Big Ten championship. I never did a lot of these things. And so it's it's hard. Even you're seeing Ohio State tweet a lot of this stuff out. It's like, really? That's, I mean, yay, but who cares right now? So it feels like C.J. Stroud, what he was as an individual talent, is it going to be appreciated for a while? And he understands that, and that's just something he's going to have to deal with for a little bit. I think it spoke volumes that he was not on the broadcast today when they were announcing the team. Like you yes. usually have the offensive player of the year and quarterback of the year. Like that guy would have a little segment. They do a little interview. They did it for a lot of the other positions, and 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 definitely the, the defensive player of the year. And they did it with Blake Corum today, but. Stroud wasn't on there. Marvin Harrison Jr. wasn't on there. And I think it is emblematic of just this weird middle place that Ohio State as a program, as a fan base, everybody is just kind of stuck in this strange us. We're kind of stuck in this strange little imbalance of how do you process this? But I agree with Steven that there's I mean, listen, so much of his legacy will be things he did on the field production, being the person who extends what Ohio State is as far as quarterbacks and offensive player of the year and stuff in the Big Ten. He came and did his job at least to that extent, and I don't think that's nothing. But I do think, right, it's it's not that the Ohio State guys weren't being interviewed on the Big Ten network because they thought it would be a bad look. It's because they don't want to talk about it. Like they don't because they don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not like, yeah. oh, nobody yeah. else cares, mm-hmm. so I don't want to go talk. It's like they don't care. Yep. And I do think, frankly, there's probably people, some people listening to this who are like, why did you guys just do 40 minutes on this? I don't care. But you can't you can't just have everything, you know. So we're still going to do some of the football stuff. And when we come back after the break, we're going to get into some of these other things and this nebulous world of Ohio State may make the playoff after losing to Michigan, which is a super complicated thing. And we could do two hours on that. And we would just spin ourselves into a circle and we're going to find out First, USC is going to play on Friday night, and TCU is going to play Saturday afternoon, and then on Sunday, the committee is going to announce it. So we're going to get an answer soon enough. I don't think we have to if and maybe ourselves into oblivion, which is why we did 40 minutes on, hey, these were the best players in the Big Ten this year. Let's talk about it, because that still happened, even if we know the deal. So when we come back, I'm going to talk about some stuff for a little bit, and then Nathan and Steve are going to come back and talk about this playoff idea, what the committee did on Tuesday night and what it means for Ohio State fans and Ohio State this weekend. And we'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk, it's Doug. I'm going to do just a couple minutes on a couple things here, and then Nathan and Steven will be along with uh, a longer playoff discussion about Ohio State. Shahanjay Haraja and I had a long discussion about what the committee did on Tuesday night, the overall playoff picture, the historical view of that, all those things. You can find that on the College Football Survivor Show. It's the free show this week. It's up now. So I already did it, and so we wanted to let Stephen and Nathan have their say on that. So that'll come later. A couple little things. So uh, I waited too long. I, I did. I'm doing this late, late, late Wednesday night. The Rose Bowl gave in. We are definitely going to have the 12 team playoff in 2024. So 14 playoff this year, 14 playoff next year. Then we are to the 12 team playoff. Right now, it's you know we all can do the math. It's like hey, everyone does stories. You guys could figure out what the 12 team playoff would be. It would be a little bit weird that five spot, which is what Ohio State would be in right now. And if TCU and USC both win, Ohio State would be the five seed in a 12 team playoff. Obviously, would be out in this one. That five seed every year is going to play the group of five 
champ that gets in because um, it's six conference champs and it's the Power Five and one extra. It'd probably be Tulane is expected to win the American this year. It's going to be a little weird for the five seed. It's like, hey, great. It's Ohio State Tulane in Ohio Stadium in mid-December. Woo, this is what we came for. But then, of course, Ohio State winning that game. Now, Tulane beat Kansas State this year. Tulane's actually a pretty lively team. And we know what Cincinnati did last year. Cincinnati wouldn't have been the 12 last year. But um, obviously, because they got in the real playoff. But uh, you'd, you'd get to settle the thing then, right? So you'd get the five against the four, and then it just, you know, the five seed plays an extra game. So you get to settle that thing. So c- glad the 12-team playoff is here. You guys know that I've really come around on that. I think it's good for everybody. I'd like to write something uh, in the next week or so, like really digging into to where I've flipped uh, on that. So that is that. Reports that Brian Hartline is interviewing at Cincinnati. Again, we can't be shocked by that. Uh, Brian Hartline is a good and and not like you want to say like a good young coach. I mean, he's not like 26, right? I mean, this is a guy who um, is getting ready for the next step in his career. He is 36. And, you know, this is one of those things where um, you don't have to be a coordinator. He's the pass game. He's not the offensive coordinator, but he has a pass game title, passing game coordinator now at Ohio State. Again, he his voice does matter beyond that, that you he's not only worried about his position group. So he's 36 years old. And Urban Meyer is the the comparison that I always make because Urban Meyer was not um a coordinator before he became the head coach at Bowling Green. And obviously Cincinnati's a bigger job than Bowling Green was back when Urban took it, but Urban took it when he was uh, 36, 37, right? Like right around this age. So that's the kind of thing that happens. I do think we, we did talk about Keenan Bailey on one of the other pods. Um, Keenan Bailey is really involved. Keenan Bailey is really involved. Keenan Bailey is really trusted by Brian Hartline. And it's also really trusted by Ryan Day. So I do think if Brian Hartline, if and when Brian Hartline leaves someday, uh, I think Keenan Bailey is a very logical replacement for him as the receivers coach. Does he have the NFL pedigree? No, I understand that. Um, would they maybe get, go get somebody on the outside? Yeah. You know, Kenny Guyton is a guy who's a receivers coach at a power five school right now at Arkansas. I'd be in favor of that. Uh, and maybe Brian Hartline would want to take Keenan Bailey and make him his receivers coach, wherever Brian Hartline goes. If, when, if Brian Hartline leaves for a head job, but um, it'll hurt, but you can't be Ohio state and say that like we, we're devastated by an assistant coach leaving no matter how good they are. And Brian Hartline's excellent, both in recruiting uh, and in positional development and relationship with players. So that's just a reality. You'd rather be a place where your guys are so good they're getting offers to leave than be a place where nobody wants your assistance. So we'll monitor that. Um, it's at very least a logical interview, right? And I do think it's the the thing that has changed. And when you make the urban Meyer comparison, going to a Mac school, just like the best assistants at a place like Ohio state are just not going to take Mac jobs anymore. It's just not, you're going to wait for a better job because being a, even a non-coordinator at Ohio state is a better job. It's a higher paying job at the very least than a Mac job. And if you don't get the right Mac job, you know, Daryl Hazel went from Ohio state to the Mac, right? And he got the right Mac job and he got a, the Purdue job, you know, guys like Paul Haynes and Tim Beckman and other um, former Ohio state assistants have gone on to be head coaches in the Mac. If you take the wrong Mac job, it can derail your career before it even starts. 
So it has to be like the perfect, ready to win football commitment kind of Mac job. So, but I don't think Brian Hartland would take a Mac job. But I think Cincinnati, like that's my gosh, Cincinnati is like one. Cincinnati is a Big Twelve job now. Like, what are we talking about? Would you leave for a power five job? That's like a big job. So we'll see what happens with Brian Hartline. We don't know anything, but other than reports that he's interviewing. And then the last thing is that I wanted to talk about was a good reporter, columnist at The Athletic in Tennessee, longtime Michigan State beat reporter before he went to Tennessee. Joe Rex wrote wrote a column at The Athletic about Mike Vrabel in Ohio State. And it's the kind of column, and I did briefly, I mean, I, I know Joe very well from our time covering stuff together. He's not like a hot take guy. He's like a serious dude. So um, that's the kind of piece that you write on your local beat when something like this happens. So it's not fanciful, but it's also doesn't mean that like Mike Rabel is around the corner, right? So I'm taking the Ohio State job. Mike Rabel and Ryan Day are friends. Mike Rabel and Ryan Day um, are good enough friends that Mike Rabel offered Ryan Day the Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator job. We've covered that in the past. Ryan Day turned it down. That's how Ryan Day got a raise at Ohio State. Matt LaFleur got it instead. Matt LaFleur was there like a year and then became the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. So that's like, I've written that. Oh, what if, you know, maybe Ryan Day could be the head coach of the Green Bay Packers right now because he turned down the job that the next guy took and became the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. So like Mike Rabel's not going to like shove Ryan Day out the door. But when we did have a conversation with you guys, with the texters about, hey, who would you want if it wasn't Ryan Day? Um, a lot of you, I, I just gave Urban and Fickle as like, hey, they're right here. But the the other two names that you guys brought up were Brian Hartline and Mike Vrabel. And so I do think, I, I talked to Vrabel's agent when he left Ohio State, and he said then, he said he's going to be either an NFL head coach or the head coach at Ohio State, like sooner than later. And he was right. So he went to be uh, on the staff of the Houston Texans, moved up very quickly, defensive coordinator there, becomes a head coach of the Tennessee Titans. Mike Vrabel, I think, is one of the best coaches in the NFL. And I do think Mike Vrabel is a whole package. But, and and I do think it's like quite possible that Mike Vrabel one day is Ohio State's head coach. Because I'm trying to think, do you guys know, what would be another example of a guy who came back, left the NFL, and then came back to his alma mater to be the head coach. I don't know if there's a recent example that we could cite, but like, I do think Mike Vrabel has that in him. Ohio guy. Um, and he kind of, he's a great, I think he's a great um, analytical mind in the NFL. He finds ways to win whatever he's given. The Titans obviously win a very specific way, but, but his teams win more than they would with many other coaches. I do believe that. And you guys saw the thing probably the other week of, he had like a really emotional moment with an, with a lineman coming off the field about um, that guy playing hurt and playing tough and how impressed and how proud Vrabel was. And they had an emotional moment. So this guy does kind of check all the boxes, um, but like, it doesn't mean it's happening tomorrow. So, and the way that Joe wrote it was like, if Ryan Day decided like this isn't worth it, maybe Mike Vrabel would be up next. And so I do think like that would be, I'm, I know I'm, I don't know it, but I would really guess when that job ever becomes open, if Mike Vrabel's not 70 years old when it does, that Ohio State would give him a call. And I, and I think Mike Vrabel would take the call. So if, if people are pushing back, like, why would he be interested? I'd, I think he might be. Like, again, it doesn't mean he's interested right now. He's 47 years old. Uh, it doesn't mean he's interested, like, right this second. But we're just 
you know, it was an interesting piece by Joe. But but the thing you have to remember is you write for your local audience, right? You write for your people. It's like, hey, I'm writing about the current coach of the Tennessee Titans. And then Joe is theorizing basically a world where Ryan Day, you know, says this isn't worth it. I'm going to the NFL. Then what? It's not a Mike Vrabel is about to be Ohio State's head coach. So I wouldn't I wouldn't like I think it's quite possible Vrabel would be it one day. But again, he and Ryan Day are have a friendly relationship. So um, I just wanted to address that. It's one of those things I do think it's our responsibility. Like when there's stuff out there, we want to be your guide. That's really where I've come. You know, let me tell you back in the day, I can remember I was covering the Philadelphia Phillies back in the day. I covered the Phillies from 1998 to 2001. So 98, 99, 2000, 2001. I was a beat writer for four years and I said, I can't do this anymore. Major League Baseball beat writing is a grind, friends. Whew, it is a grind. And I can remember they said, hey, we're going to give you a blog. And I was like, what? What's a, what's a blog? And it's it was sort of like at the end of the day when you're done writing all the things you have to write, you can just put extra stuff on the blog. And I was like, do I get paid extra? And they were like, no, it's just like a thing. Like if you have extra stuff, if you want to write more. And I was like, what do you mean if I want to write more? Like when I'm done with the writing that I do for work, then I can do extra on the side over here. Like, what are we doing? What does this mean? Is this part of my job or not? And that and that was a blog. So um, why did I even start talking about that? So, um, but I, oh, so that was a long time ago when the internet was invented. I also can remember coming out of college and working at my first job at a newspaper. And back then, so in college, I can remember my senior year, my roommate would go to the special computer lab at college and he would do email. And I was like, wow, what? You do what? And then we got to our first jobs and we didn't have internet at our house. And so we could only be on the internet at work. And so it was like, oh, I'm going to like stay at work and be on the internet. And then one of our friends that we worked with got internet at home and we were like, are you a millionaire? And so then they, like, we went to their house to watch them do AOL dial up. And we were like, wow, like, can we afford this? So then we got it and it was like, are we millionaires now? But then you could only be on for like half an hour at a time <laughs> because you would run out of time on AOL. Uh, and so then, you know, then you went to the next. And then uh, my first newspaper, we started this thing where like we were a newspaper, but you could you could come in on AOL and go to like a special page that you get some online stuff. So then when I was a beat writer, it was like, hey, do you want to write extra? And I was like, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, can I just do my job that I'm paid for and not do the extra for free? And then there was this time when it was like everybody, like you would write for a newspaper, like here is what your team is doing. I am a newspaper writer. And then you'd get on a blog and write like an actual human and like be relaxed and authoritative and fun and relatable. And it's like, why do we write in a fun, interesting way on the blog, but in the newspaper, we're like the team I cover did this. Why don't we do the blog thing all the time? And so then once it now, now I don't know if you guys are aware, the internet's pretty big these days. But um, I did, I've very much come around on the idea of like, we have to be your guide. So like, if you trust us, we can't close our eyes to stuff. So you might have seen a Vrabel headline, right? You might've been like, what? Or, and you've seen the Heartline reports. So then it's like, well, we didn't break it. I mean, I didn't write it, but I don't want to pretend it doesn't exist. So I just want to talk to you about it. I just wanted to come on and talk about those things. So um, I don't think any of it's, you know, Heartline would be missed. And I think that a lot of the rest of the stuff is interesting. And that's just the way this stuff goes. Keenan Bailey is really a guy, I think, who's kind of up next for Ohio State, though. And again, I said that before. I don't love the guy down the hall. I also would like Kenny Guyton to be on Ohio State staff one day. So um, 
Ryan Day, I would have that name in your drawer. And I and I think Kenny could fit. I mean, he played quarterback here. He's been a receivers coach. I think he would check a lot of boxes. Uh, relatable. I know he re- would recruit to this place. I think. I think just. I think is really smart. Again, it's just one of those guys. Sort of had it all when he was here, and you could see it coming. So I, I would welcome that. I'm not pushing Brian Line Hartline out the Brian Hartline out the door to get Kenny Guyton, but have him on your list if something happens. So good luck to Brian Hartline with whatever comes next. I, I don't think he'll jump just for any jump. Okay. And I got the playoff stuff wrong. I was wrong on Monday. So I apologize for that. I just thought I had a read on how the committee, uh, if they did this, it would mean this. If they did this, it would mean that. And then like they did this and it meant that. It wasn't that this meant this. It was that this meant that. Which again, it's not the first time the committee did that. So I, I really d- thought if Ohio State wasn't for, uh, there was a very good chance that like there just wasn't a path for them. But then the committee very much made it clear that there is. That if USC, I, I think... I, I, I'm, I'm short of a guarantee, but obviously you're watching the USC game on Friday night with great interest. So Nathan and Steven will talk about that more now. Oh, and the last thing is like, this is the, like the end of the year thing happened with Spotify. I think Apple will do it later too, um, where you get like the podcast or the music that you listen to the most because the robots are constantly spying on us. And they know if you're listening to Buckeye Talk, the robots know if you're listening. We should almost make like a secret like back door to listen to Buckeye talk so that the robots don't know, but they know. And then, so some of you are sending us messages and saying, Hey, you know, this is how many minutes I listened to Buckeye talk this year. Buckeye talk is in my top five of podcasts or number one. And it's just like, it's, I said, it's like, it's ridiculous. I mean, like it was so humbling that, that, that you would allow us, um, whether you're, this is the first five minutes you've ever listened or this is the 50,000th minute that you've listened. Um, we're grateful for it, but it's humbling when you realize uh, how loyal some people are to to the things that you put your time into. So we know you guys are all loyal to Ohio State football, but that, that we're also – we have a connection with a lot of you guys. It comes around every year, but I never cease to be amazed and humble, 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 grateful, thankful, and just we're lucky that uh, we get to be part, that you guys are on the ride with us, as we say. We're taking the ride. We just put it out into the world. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm sitting in a room. I'm sitting in a room with yellow walls. There's a goofy doll up there. There's a Fozzie bear. There's another. I actually have two goofies. I might be too many goofies. I have a Greedo. Greedo's like my favorite Star Wars guy because he's green and my favorite color was green when I was a kid. So I like Greedo. But I know everyone gets into like the who shot first, Han or Greedo. I just like him because he's green. And uh, I have the mold wax, the wax mold of my hand. That's up there couple things my daughter's made. I'm sitting in this room by myself and I'm talking into a microphone saying crazy stuff and then like you guys listen to it. So we'd probably do it whether anyone listened to it or not because we're psychos, but that you do uh, is we're grateful for it every day. And when we get that reminder at the end of the year, we're even more grateful. All right, Stephen and Nathan up next. We'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. This is Nathan. I'm here with Steven. We are talking about Ohio State's placement in the penultimate, which is a word that really is saved almost exclusively to be used with the next to last college football playoff rankings announcement of the season. But the penultimate CFP rankings that came out Tuesday night, Georgia number one, Michigan number two. I thought there was a chance Michigan would jump Georgia. I think there was a case for them to jump Georgia, frankly. Uh, number three, TCU, all three of those teams are undefeated. And then the, the big question was whether Ohio State would be number four ahead of USC or whether USC would be number four, which is where they are, 11-1 and 
at number four. They're playing for the Pac-12 championship on Friday night against Utah. Ohio State is at home on by literally at home, like not playing a game. They are at home at their homes on Saturday. Uh, number five in the rankings. Number six, Alabama behind them. Uh, I don't want to get into that very much because uh, the Boo Corgan, the selection committee chairman, definitely didn't dismiss the idea that Alabama could jump Ohio State, even though neither of them play this weekend and Alabama has two losses. But I think that's a nightmare that I'm just going to push off to the side. Let's focus on what is actually ahead of Ohio State. If USC loses, it will take a second loss to Utah, a team that has three losses. The selection committee chairman, I asked Boo Corrigan straight up, and I kept it hypothetical. I didn't want to make it. What do you guys think about if this happens? It was just philosophically. You have four teams. You have four teams that are playing in conference championships, and you have a team or teams who could Mm -hmm. still be the ones that plausibly make the final four, but none of them are playing in conference championship games. So how do you look at that? Why, Why should those, you know, he called it a bonus game. On the broadcast, Reese Davis asked him, and he's like, oh, that 13th game, that's like a bonus game. I'm like, well, it doesn't seem like much of a bonus if you can lose your way out of it compared to a team that isn't playing this weekend. So I guess, Stephen, this is something I think that we are wrapping our heads around that I think Ohio State fans are wrapping their heads around it a little bit because on the one hand, it doesn't feel like Ohio State deserves a reward, but at the same time, I struggle when I look at these resumes side by side. I still think Ohio State's might be better. And especially if USC takes a second loss to a three-loss team, it's 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 a confusing weekend. And just I, how do you look at it? Do you think that Ohio State deserves to get in if USC loses? Yes, I do. And... And no, you the don't. way I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't at the same time because it's like Ohio State lost at home by multiple scores to a team, and I and, and Michigan's very good. Their only loss is to a team who was ranked third when they played them, and now they're number two. But they've also got wins over the number eight team in the rankings on the road. They beat Notre Dame, who is holding on by a thread at number twenty one to stay in the rankings. They've got other ranked wins. While USC's most impressive win is probably the UCLA win at 17, while also using to Utah. This is frustrating in its way. I think I've made this point a couple of times. The Michigan-Ohio State game, the only difference between that game and then what Alabama and Georgia did when they both made it anyway, especially since Alabama won that game, was that it was a week later. It wasn't during rivalry week. It was during the conference championship week. So it made sense that Georgia and Alabama should both just get in. But if that game would have been the week before and the winner goes to the SEC championship game, does Georgia still get in when they lose? That's a, another hypothetical to throw at you, which is where we're living right now until Friday and Saturday afternoon. I think it, regardless of the extra game factor and all that stuff, the Fact of the matter will be if Utah beats USC again, which will be their second loss to Utah this year, one team will have two losses and won't have a conference championship, and the other team will have one loss without a conference championship, and their losses to a team who is firmly into the college football playoff, regardless of what they do on Saturday. And I think those are the facts. Now, what do you do with those facts as the people meeting in that room? But there's an extra fact, which is – USC only took that second loss. It's only being exposed to that second yeah. loss because it succeeded its way into the pack. And that's where it gets frustrating. I tried to ask Boo Corrigan about it, 
and his, well, you know, it's just going to be part of their body of work. I'm like, okay, but it's different sizes of bodies of work now. That's the whole point. Yeah. Um, it's I, So to go back to something else you said, I think Georgia – Doug and I discussed this real quick, so we don't have to – on the Monday pod. So I don't think we have to go into this deep. People should listen to Doug and Shahan on the college football playoff uh, survivor show college football survivor show <laughs> to get into a, a more in-depth discussion about the whole field. But Georgia's in Georgia's yes. in. I, I don't care what happens against LSU. They're somewhere in the yes. top four. I think Michigan's in the top four too, because you can't drop Michigan below Ohio state, even if they lose to Purdue on a neutral field. So those two teams are in TCU is 12 and 0. TCU has wins over – let me bring up my sheet that I used to vote in my AP poll because I've got all this stuff marked. They've got wins over Kansas State already, which is the number 10 team, and that's a team they're playing again this weekend. So then even if they play this weekend, the team that they would lose to is a team they've already beaten this year. And then mm-hmm. they've got some other wins that are, like, solid. And a lot of them happen to be on the road, like winning at Texas, winning at Baylor, winning at Kansas at a time when Kansas was – Good. I think Vance's might have still been like, you know, six and zero, five and zero, whatever at that point of the season when they mm-hmm. beat them. Winning at SMU even is not a bad win. And some of the, a lot of those are close. That's one touchdown, one touchdown. All three of those are one touchdown, and one of them is a one point game. So it's just a team that keeps finding a way to win. But again, now they're twelve and zero. Like if I'm comparing their twelve game resume to Ohio State's, I think there's some question whether USC's is better. I don't think there's any question anymore about whether 12-game resume TCU's is better than Ohio State's. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. TCU is the new team. After Clemson lost, and we were all like, thank God, we don't have to see them in the playoff. TCU became that new team. It's like, oh, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. And then they never lost. So, yes, I th- because to your point, that's a lot of road games. That That's part of the reason why you can say, oh, they were close. Well, they were on the road, and they won, so who cares? So, yes, their resume is better than Ohio State's is. Even if – I think Ohio State has the better overall win. I think the Penn State win is the best win overall. But then two, through, two three, four, and five probably belong to TCU. So I know people are watching to see if TCU loses and what that could open for Ohio State. I think TCU would have to get just boat raced by Kansas State mm-hmm. in order to – hurt the hurt their esteem in the eyes of the committee and drop them two spots down below Ohio State who isn't playing this weekend because they kind of just got beat up. And I know you know we've talked about the the this margin of victory, how you should look at it for the Ohio State game. Even if you don't look at it as a 22 point loss, it's at least a 15 point loss. Like in mm-hmm. terms of how you're comparing resumes and that's bad enough at home. And I don't, you know, even if you are playing one of the four best teams in the country, uh because they're just our our small margins that we're comparing here. So I really think this is going to be a very fascinating test case. Now, USC may just beat Utah. I mean, USC, the first time they played Utah, I watched a lot of that game. It, it was a, a night game in the Pac-12. I think Ohio State might have had a either a noon game or a bye week. I can't remember when that how what was going on that week for Ohio State. I think it was um, – um, It was, it was bye week. Yeah, so it, it was, was the, a bye week. Yeah. And um, – I watched a lot of that game, came away very impressed by Caleb Williams. There were definitely one of those times where, like, you're watching him and you're like, oh, that's like, that's not a thing I see C.J. Stroud do uh, ever. Uh, mostly leg things, not necessarily arm things. And we've, we're we not going to start that whole conversation again. But USC didn't look bad in that game. Now, their defense has been shaky all year. I was looking at the ESPN SP Plus 
earlier this year, earlier this week, I should say, comparing these resumes. I think Ohio State was four on offense and USC was two, but Ohio State was like 13 on defense and USC was like 60. Like it's not really close in terms of defensive metrics. Uh, the committee likes balance. USC is not mm-hmm. more balanced than Ohio State. Ohio State is the more balanced team. But the one game they, the one loss they have was at Utah, a team that has been ranked well all year by a lot by most people. I wasn't ranking them for a while in the AP poll, and Utah fans were salty about it. But they finally did actually start beating good teams and deserve to be ranked higher. Uh, but it's a one point loss on a two point conversion at the end of a game where you're on the road and like that's almost it's, it's hard to hold against someone and to some extent as as being like some kind of catastrophic loss. So. But no two-loss team has ever gotten into the playoff. And when we considered whether a two-loss team might get in, it was very specifically LSU winning out and beating Georgia in the SEC championship game that would make them be mm-hmm. a two-loss team that deserved to get in because of the quality of some of their other wins. But that's now they laid an egg, lost to Texas A&M, they're done. So I'm, I struggle to see how a two-loss non-conference champion gets in but I also struggle with this concept that like USC at that point is kind of getting punished. Now you can also argue that Ohio state is getting punished in its own way this weekend by not having already shuffled its playoff stru- or its uh, conference championship structure and gotten to get right back on the field and try to avenge this loss and earn it back on the right. field. If they beat Michigan on a neutral field on Saturday, they're, they're in the top four. I, I think it would be no question. So I don't know how the, committee is going to look at that um and i'm still i really have the the one thing i come away with is man i can't wait till there's a 12 team playoff because it just seems so silly and arbitrary to be arguing which of these two teams to keep out whereas if you're having this argument at 12 and 13 well i'm sorry like you you were on the margin of not even being in the conversation but these teams that like all you're talking about deserving resumes with flaws to be still in national championship contention. That has always been a really hard thing for me to accept. And Ohio State, uh, and we're just saying facts here, Ohio State is a team that has come out on the wrong end of that the most. They would have made the playoff every year. It's Right now, they're the only program that would have made the playoff every year if you if you applied the 12-team 12 12 playoff retroactively. And that'll still be the case Saturday, whether they get in or not. I think you just brought up a really important point with – how Ohio State's kind of being punished because of how their divisions are. I think they're the only team from the from a Power Five standpoint who finished first or second in their conference in terms of just overall standings and isn't playing in the game that should decide who's the better team in the conference. Just because Ohio State, and Michigan are both in the East. If one's in the West, this is once again it's, if one's in the West, I think as long as Ohio State wins this weekend, they're in. Regardless of what USC does or not, but I, I, I think I, I don't know if the committee will consider that or not. Maybe they will, just because it is something that's on everybody's minds since the Big Ten's getting rid of the divisions. So maybe they think about that. But then also, the complete team aspect of this for the first six weeks of the season, we thought Ohio State was the most complete team in college football. Elite offense who just couldn't get healthy, but still elite offense, and the defense looked like it was a top fifteen defense. And then things kind of went astray a little bit there. While with Utah. And, and excuse me, with USC, that defense hasn't looked good all year. And so the fact that they gave up, was it, 43 points to Utah isn't that shocking. And so the more you start throwing stuff at the dartboard, the more you keep going pro Ohio State, 
but you also have to think of the fact that USC is playing an extra game this weekend. So they're, they're liable to lose another game. How much, how big is that factor versus maybe all these little details that keep saying Ohio State should be in if USC loses on Friday? I think there is something to be said for who has ended the season stronger, at least relative to what people thought about them. Because Ohio State, these last four games, you had the weird game at Northwestern, and the committee watches all the games, and I think they probably processed that in the right context, but you you don't know. I mean, they kept them number two after that game, and it kept them number two up until the Michigan loss. So I, I don't think it hurt them that bad. The, the easy win over Indiana, and then you have like the game at Maryland, where if you want to say the Michigan game, the margin wasn't as bad as what the score shows. Well, the margin of victory at Maryland wasn't as good as what the score shows. It was a mm-hmm. one touchdown game. And, and then they get the late defensive touchdown when they're like bringing the house. So it compared to UC USC, which I'm just looking at its last four games. Now they had a narrow home win over Cal again, where they're just giving up points and I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember whether that was a game where Cal got some late, garbage points or not they they thump colorado which is one of the worst programs in the country they, six point win for california right but i'm saying uh, i knew it was a six point win i just can't remember the context of that because you know, sometimes oh, yeah. it, it could have been like 41 to 14 going into the fourth quarter yeah cal scores three touchdowns i don't know um then they win by three at ucla but again at the time ucla is like knocking on the door of the top 10 or has been for at times mm-hmm. this season like they've been really solid and then the home win against notre dame by the same margin of victory that Ohio State did. There was was 38-27 Notre Dame's, uh, the Ohio State's was 21-10. to uh, At the bookends of the season, kind of weird how that worked out to be like a common data point between these teams, and then they are like exactly the same margin. It When he was asked about it Tuesday night, boo, I just love saying boo. I hope he's, I think he's back next year. I think we'll get a double, I think we'll get a second year of boo. I've been I've been excited not to to at this point, and I shouldn't jinx myself because we have to talk to him Saturday possibly. Uh, Sunday, I should say. I have not referred to him accidentally as Boo Radley, the character from To Kill a Mockingbird, and I was terrified that I would do that at some point. So I need you over my shoulder on Sunday, making sure I don't call him Boo Radley. But he was, I, he was asked, "Why is is USC's um, is the Notre Dame win why they moved up ahead of Ohio State? Like, has it been? Or no, I, I should I should say that is it because he was asked was it the margin of loss against Utah versus the margin of loss that Ohio State had? And and Corrigan said no, that it's more complex than that. That they have liked the way UCLA has played down the stretch. And then I think ending with both of these these wins, the UCLA win and the Notre Dame win back to back, is what pushed them ahead. Like getting two quality wins at the end. So. They are saying that the 12-game resume, when, that's maybe the take, biggest takeaway from Tuesday. They're saying USC's 12-game resume is better than Ohio State's, but they're leaving open the door that its 13-game resume may be worse than Ohio State's 12-game resume, which makes me, I mean, if, if, if it were the opposite, like imagine if it were the opposite. If Ohio State fans right now were watching USC at home, sitting at home on Sunday while they had to go play e- anybody, um, and expose themselves to that 13th game. And, uh, you know, USC is probably not even the best example because I think there's enough of a difference there. Maybe, like, the example is Alabama. If Alabama were sitting there at number five, just waiting to take their spot, um, I, I think Ohio State fans would be upset with that. Uh, and I, I just think, I imagine this is a hard, uh, we'll hear from them, I think. I think we're going to reach out to some Ohio State fans later this week for the pod and, and find out how they're processing all this. But I would have a hard time 
thinking my way through this right now. Because you want to play for a national championship, but put yourself in the other team's shoes. Yeah, but at least USC controls its own destiny. Just go win the football game and none of this matters. It's it's a very simple... USC has a very simple objective here. Don't you lose to Utah again. And this hypothetical if... all the, Everything we're talking about right now becomes very irrelevant if USC just, lose on, just wins on Friday. It's only a thing if they lose. And then we spend the next 48 hours... Thinking in the back of our head, well, what's the committee thinking? How much did they lose by? Is it because they only lost by three? They still stick with USC? Or did Utah come out and thump them? Now they they won by 21 points, and so maybe it should be Ohio State. None of that matter. So I think, honestly, yes, it's harder because you're adding another game, another data point, but it's the simplest data point you could have. Go win the game, and you're in. You lose, and you leave it up, and you put yourself in Ohio State's shoes where you're leaving it up to – some people in the room to decide which data points matter and who has more of them. Now, I think it's also possible that the committee doesn't give us everything they're thinking. Like I said, I tried to ask like the most hypothetical philosophical question and he still just kind of farted all over it. So they don't really let you in very much. And it may be that they have already decided that regardless of what happens Saturday, Mm -hmm. they're going to leave USC at number four. And they aren't going to tell us that because the whole point of all of this week to week stuff is to have big TV ratings and interest and yeah. controversy and discussion and, and all of that. So it may already be locked. Maybe it's already locked that USC is fourth regardless. And that we'll ask Sunday, even if they lose and he'll say, well, we decided that we weren't going to hold that against them. If we didn't have the same data point to compare to Ohio state. And um, I'm not, I think I'd be fine with that actually. Now, what's really interesting, if you take it a step further, though, because we're both in agreement, right, that everything they've said leaves open the possibility that a loss for USC, maybe even a loss for TCU, opens the door for Ohio State. Let's say both TCU and and USC lose this weekend. Could Ohio State be the three seed playing Michigan in a playoff semifinal? Um, no, because I don't think the committee would let the rematch that early on in the process. But if both of these teams lose, I, I honestly think they just keep TCU where they're at just for that, for the sake of matchups. So whether Ohio state should be at that point, if both teams lose the, the, the seating no longer is relevant at that point. It's just Ohio State's going to be four just because they don't want Michigan. Unless, yeah, that's it. Ohio State's going to be four. TCU's going to be three. I think is pretty locked in here, especially if both teams lose. I think you might be right. I think the committee would look at it as forcing Michigan to do something it has already done and do it again. Um, and I, I think that they would probably leave Ohio State at four and just leave TCU at three, if they're even going to do that, as we said. Like, maybe they would still just leave USC at four. So it's another year of drama. You know, we didn't have this last year. Ohio State's second the, – the, the, the game knocked them out of playoff conversation. They they plummeted, and they weren't getting back in. But this is, you know, my first – years. <laughs> yeah, my first time covering this team where Selection Sunday could have some drama. Could. Now – USC wins Friday night. I think the drama is almost completely over. And then certainly if TCU then wins, it's all done. And from that point on, I would say I've been trying to sniff around 
just hearing some things from inside Ohio State, I don't think it's a lock that it would be the Rose Bowl. In fact, I know it's not for certain that the Rose Bowl would be the destination for Ohio State at that point. I think that's Mm -hmm. especially true if it looks like it's going to be a rematch with USC. I don't Mm -hmm. think anybody wants that. Like that's, I think it would be a, a a bad event, frankly, like the, 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 the Rose Bowl is beautiful, but come on guys. So I think then you might be looking at an orange bowl scenario for Ohio state. And I don't even actually know who that would link up with, uh, Contractually, I think it's the ACC. So it might be close. Oh, that's what we want. So I mean, actually, I mean, this would actually be a really fun year to revamp that Ohio State Clemson rivalry. It's been dormant for a couple years now, and why not get them back on the field and see? Hey, you guys have both stumbled a little bit. Uh, Let's play it head to head. Let's 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 see where we're at right now. but that's obviously if we were talking about that scenario, then that's going to be another fascinating thing for Ohio State as far as, you know, you probably don't have CJ Stroud in that game. You might be missing some other guys in that game who move on. And just like last year with the Rose Bowl, it really opens up a lot of possibilities like um, getting a, a, some exposing some guys for next year. First and foremost, your quarterback in that game. So, man, kind of a fascinating couple of days that's going to play out for Ohio State. A lot of people, I think there's going to be some good ratings for that Pac-12 championship game Friday night in the greater Columbus area. Yeah, I think so. It's actually, You said here we go again with more drama. It, Ohio State hasn't had any playoff drama since 2018. Because no, 19, yeah. Yeah, 19, it was like, are they going to be the one seed? No, because they're down in Wisconsin at halftime. And then 20, they were in, and then we all know what happened last year. So, yeah, it's... We're back to the end of the Urban Meyer here with some of this drama here. So we'll see how this, I think <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, the the Pac-12 ratings are going to be a big spike in LA, maybe because there's a million things to do in LA. And then a big spike in Utah and then a big spike in the Ohio area. And people are going to be like, oh, okay. It's Ohio State fans trying to watch that game. But yeah, that's I, Ohio State fans. It's, it's interesting. They, they started the year off rooting against Utah in the Rose Bowl, and now they're all Utah fans for the, the next calendar three days. Yeah. Here. Yeah. I think there <laughs> might be more people watching in Ohio than in Utah because there's just more people in Ohio yeah. than there are in Utah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll keep an eye on it, obviously, this weekend. I know a lot of you will as well. We are going to have more playoff talk in the next couple days uh, and more talk just about. Then, you know, once Sunday comes, then we can have, I think, some more nuanced discussions about just the direction of the program. Because right now, there are so many possible outcomes for the final exclamation point of this season. And until we see what that is, it's a little bit hard to take that next step. But we are ready to do it. We're going to have fun talking about it here. So for Stephen Means, for Doug Lamarice, who you heard earlier, I'm Nathan Baird. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.